This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go Beyond Reality. Good evening, good morning, and welcome. It's Beyond Reality Radio. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. Thank you for joining me tonight. Just a word, because I had a bunch of messages, and I I think because we've got some new people tuning in on some of the new affiliates, plus uh, through our various streams, and uh, some folks asking where Jason's been. And uh, obviously they're not aware that he is out filming because there is a new show that will be airing in October that he's involved with. It's called Ghost Nation. He's filming it with uh, Dave Tango and Steve Gonzalez from Ghost Hunters. The three of them are on a 16-week filming schedule, and that will occupy his time uh, for the next, I guess we're about halfway through that period. So, But he'll be back. Um, he thought he was going to be able to be here now and then, but the schedule is kind of grueling and uh, it just hasn't been possible. But we will uh, have him back at some point. Anyway, welcome to the show. We've got uh, a very interesting discussion lined up for you tonight. We're going to be talking with Daniel Duke. Daniel is the author of a book called Jesse James and the Lost Templar Treasure, but he's not just an author. He's actually Jesse James's great great grandson. And he'll talk about how Jesse James hid treasure and encoded maps as part of the Knights of the Golden Circle. And that some of that treasure is still kicking around. And he, Daniel, that is, thinks he's got clues as to where it is. One of them may, in fact, be the infamous Oak Island treasure. So that'll be our discussion with Daniel in a little bit. Uh, Looking ahead, tomorrow night, we've got John Kachuba on. John is a paranormal author, and he'll talk about shapeshifters from cultures all around the world, from primitive man right up to today. Whether it's in folklore, myth, and pop culture, and, as some people say, it's actually in reality, or beyond reality for that matter. That'll be tomorrow night's conversation, and then a bunch of great stuff coming up. I will warn you that Thursday it'll be a best-of program. I don't know why I'm warning you. It's going to be a great interview uh, that will be airing Thursday night uh, because I will be on the road. Excuse me. I'll be on the road uh, to another event. So that'll be a best-of Thursday. Uh, Anyway, so a lot of great stuff happening. Write down the phone number in case you want to join our conversation later in the show. It's 607 282 Nine seven or toll free at eight four four six eight seven seven six six nine. Just a reminder to swing by YouTube. Check out our YouTube channel. Just search for JV Johnson. There you'll find a uh, whole library of past programs. Plus, there's a chat room that's pretty active and quite happening. A lot of great people in our chat. And I thank you all for being there and being part of the show. Um, and then also swing by Facebook and give uh, both our show page, which is Beyond Reality Radio, and my page, JV Johnson. A like and a follow, and just keep up to date on what we've got going on here on the show. Uh, All right, we'll take a break. When we come back, we'll get our guest in. Again, we're talking with Daniel Duke tonight about his book called Jesse James and the Lost Templar Treasure. It's Beyond Reality Radio. 
Did you know that online retailers like Amazon have constant deals that can save you money on the things you buy every day? It's no joke. Save 40%, 50%, even 80% on great products. And all you have to do is know about them. Noodle Shark is the way to be alerted when something good is coming your way. Noodle Shark is the social media page that lists great deals that not only save you money, but give you the deals before anyone else has them. All you have to do is find Noodle Shark on Facebook. Search it as The Noodle Shark. That's The Noodle Shark. Because you deserve to save too. Become a shark and save. Tonight, our guest is Daniel Duke. He's the great-great-grandson of Jesse James. He grew up surrounded by stories of lost outlaw treasures. And for more than two decades, he's researched the mysteries involving his family, Freemasonry, and the Knights Templar. Currently living in Texas, Daniel, welcome to be on Reality Radio. It's great to have you here tonight. Thanks. I'm honored to be here. So, the first thing... Um, I'd like to chat about is this idea of growing up surrounded by stories of lost outlaw law treasures. This sounds like the stuff a, uh, a, a, a an idyllic boy's childhood might be made of. It, it definitely was very exciting. Did you find, did these stories come from family? Did they come from local legends? Did they come from books that you found in the library? Where were the, the stories coming from? Okay, well, they had passed down through the family. Um, the, uh, you know, the family legend was Jesse faked his death and lived out the rest of his life in Texas under uh, the alias of James Lafayette Courtney. And he died at the age of 97 in 1943. And, uh, you know, hearing that, and then that, you know, any, any topic about most outlaws is always going to turn into some loot that they never recovered, they buried, and... And there was a lot of stories involving gold buried on his property, in his front yard. Uh, some relatives had stories. They'd seen it happen. You know, they went to visit at a, like a family get-together at his house in Blevins, Texas. And uh, like one lady was just, it was a, a hot summer day, and she was just brushing her, her hand along the dirt near the sidewalk and uncovered the lid of a mason jar, and when they pulled it out, it had coins in it. Oh, wow. So, you know, just stories like that, and there, there were also legends of larger treasures that he was associated with. Let's talk a little bit about who Jesse James was. I think everybody knows the name immediately, uh, but not everybody knows, knows exactly why they know the name or who he was and what, he, what the history books said he did. Tell us a little bit about Jesse James. Well, before the Civil War started... Um, Jesse, Jesse lived in Missouri, in western Missouri. And around the time of the Civil War, Frank, his older brother, had joined the legitimate Confederate Army. And, you know, he went off to war to fight. Well, Jesse was too young. He stayed at home, and he was plowing in the field one day. A um, group of Union-backed guerrilla, guerrillas from Kansas uh, rode onto their farm, strapped him to his plow, brutally beat him, rode on to the farmhouse, pushed his pregnant mother around, and hung his stepfather. Oof. His stepfather didn't die, but, you know, he suffered brain damage from then on. It, it uh, you know, choked, choked off the oxygen to his brain. Sure. He, he, was, he was disabled after that. Um, so, understandably, you know, a 14-year-old boy, especially in those days, he wanted revenge, and he wanted to fight, but he was too young, and he found a group, Quantrell's guerrillas, who allowed him to fight with them. Um, and this, this happened, the fighting had been going on 10 years before the Civil War, and a lot of people say that's where the Civil War started. It was just brutal. Yeah. From, uh, 
Kansas and Missouri fighting each other. Yeah, they were a war so, zone. They were a war zone before those first shots were fired at Fort Sumter. Exactly, long before. So uh, there was a lot of you know bitter, just like a horribly bitter rivalry, and they were all out for each other's you know blood. Um, after during the war, Quantrill's guerrillas was ex- they were extremely good at what they did, and Jesse was one of the the best at at uh, killing. You know, during the war, they were in a war, and that's what you do, and he was extremely good at it. But after the war ended, all the Confederate soldiers were granted amnesty, except for Quantrell's guerrillas. Even though there's evidence showing that they were part of the official legitimate Confederacy, uh, they weren't granted amnesty. So they were hunted down like dogs. They were outlawed. If they turned themselves in, like Jesse had tried to surrender at at the end of the war, he got a bullet through the chest for his efforts. Oh, geez. So, uh, you know, I can see, I believe their mindset, Jesse and the, the gang that was with him, was, you know, if we're going to be outlawed, we might as well live up to that. And, you know, it was either die, they were going to die either way. So right. They, they started striking back at banks and railroads and, uh, and stages. Anything that had, uh, I believe, at the, at the time, in the beginning, anything that had northern interests and you know after the war was over the south was broke so most of the banks during reconstruction were run by by northerners so they were you know getting back at at the man kind of that kind of mentality and um, in 1879 well you know after a long career of robbing banks trains and stages in 1879 Jesse wanted out in the 70s uh, he came to Texas in 1871 and we have his diary where he'd mentioned, you know, that from 1871 to 1876, which was full of gang members' names and, and other information. But uh, in 1879, most people don't know this, he tried to fake his death, and it's well-documented in news reports of the time and other, other reports. Uh, it didn't work. He and George Shepard got together, tried to fake his death. It didn't work, and they, they couldn't find a body. There wasn't a body, so nobody believed it. And then when, in 1882, when Jesse is supposed to have been shot in the back of the head by Bob and Charlie Ford, it wasn't Jesse. I, it was his cousin, Wood Height. Uh, his cousin, Wood Height, bore a strong resemblance to Jesse. And the law enforcement in, of the day, nobody knew what Jesse looked like. Nobody could ID him except for his family and his close friends. And being in that kind of life for so long, your close friends are a very tight, close-knit group. So, you know, very very few people in the world could actually ID him. And that um, Woodhite wasn't killed on, it wasn't a plan to kill him. I think it happened. There was a love triangle. Woodhite was uh, infatuated with Bob and Charlie Ford's sister, Martha. She had a farm, and his, she also had a farmhand who was also infatuated with her. I think it was a love triangle. A shootout happened, and people died. Woodhite was one of them, and uh, I think that just came at an opportune moment. He looked enough like Jesse, and they passed him off as Jesse. Okay, so a couple of questions here. One is that the uh, the the um, events that you just described, where it wasn't Jesse James that got shot in the head, but he took advantage of the situation. Um, obviously, that's not what the history books say, at least the ones I'm familiar with. So is this what your research has uncovered? Yes, my mother had written 
three books on this. She started this all for me. I mean, it was in a, my late mother. She had written, she wanted to find out the truth. Was the family legend true or was history, you know, telling it, which one was right and which was wrong? She, she had to know, and she researched it for well over 20 years, wrote three books, and with all the evidence she'd gathered over the time, she had proven that the family legend was true. Um, even in the 1995 exhumation of the grave in Kearney, Missouri, which was said to have been Jesse's grave, uh, they claimed that they proved with DNA that Jesse was shot in 1882 and buried there. She blew that story out of the water and uncovered a lot of evidence showing that they proved nothing. Wow. Okay. So you you've given me a lot of fodder here to talk about. I want to I want to go back to 1879 when you said that uh, it's well documented that Jesse James attempted at that point to fake his own death, but they couldn't find a body. So if they didn't get as far as finding a body, why why would it have been reported on in the media at that time? Did something happen? Well, he had he had wanted out, and I, I think they came up with a quick plan. They thought it would work. And, you know, a lot of people were, were, with Jesse's reputation, especially the reputation he had during the Civil War, he, he would, you know, if somebody was after him and they got him cornered, they would most likely die. Um, so I think, you know, his fear, the fear of him and just his name, um, they thought that, you know, we'll, we'll leave a blood trail. I'll tell people, George would tell, you know, he rode into town and said, I shot Jesse, he bled, you know, I know he's dead, and that, I guess they hoped that that story would be believable. Mm-hmm. Um, but people wanted a body, and oh, I see. rumors started circulating, and it just didn't work out for him. So, so he said he claimed to have shot him, but then when he couldn't produce a body or couldn't produce any more evidence, then then they realized it was a hoax. Yeah. Wow. Exactly. And then, and then in 1882, uh, when it was reported that it was Jesse James that was shot in the head, you said that you know nobody really knew how, what he looked like. You couldn't really identify him. And we have to remember at that point, I mean, there were some photographs, but photographs were very rare. And probably the best any law enforcement had seen was some type of uh, etching or sketch on a uh, on a wanted poster or something, right? Exactly. And they went by other you know reports, uh, like during robberies, who. You know, you know, they would they would ask people to describe him, and there were so many different descriptions, but most people said he was tall. Um, there were there were others saying that he was shorter, and so nobody they didn't even know how tall or short he was, uh, and he was actually a tall man. And so, who was it in 1882 that said it was in fact Jesse James that had been shot in the head? They had had. Several, well, the, the Bob and Charlie Ford claimed it. You know, they were hired mm-hmm. supposedly by the governor to put an end to Jesse. Um, so they claimed that was Jesse. They also, uh, and his family, his mother, and it's been recorded in the old papers, when she came into the house to identify him, she said, you've got the wrong man, that's not my son. Somebody took her aside, and she came back in the house and crying and claiming, oh, my poor boy. So, you know, she put on a good act. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, she at first claimed it wasn't him and then turned around instantly and started crying and claimed it was, was her boy. Um, there's, then there was some of his uh, former guerrilla members and former gang members had identified the body as being Jesse. And, I mean, anybody who's close to him would have known um, what he looked like, but they also would have... they they. They had fought in the war together. They'd rode together for years. 
they they would cover each other. I mean, it's it's just that alone. The people right. who identified him, they were they were lying for him. And at the funeral, um, Zerelda, Jesse's aunt said, "That's not the Jesse I knew." And <laughs> Zerelda was recorded as saying, "Oh, that's a rabbit's foot." <laughs> and that was it. You know, that, that's all she said. We've got about a minute here before we have to go to break, and we'll continue our conversation, obviously, on the other side of the break. But you said your mother worked on this for about 20 years, had written three books. Were the three books related to this particular case? Yes. All three books were related just to Jesse and proving that he didn't die as history said he did. Uh, they, they didn't mention the treasure much. And there were a few treasure mentions of, of the treasure, but not not too deep into that. So did you work on any of that with her? I worked on a lot of the research with my mother, mm-hmm. and on the side, I I wanted to find I wanted to, to research the mysteries of the treasures, and ended up stumbling upon, you know, it a huge treasure. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so as you were learning more about uh, just Jesse James, his life and his death, or or reported death, um, you started to uncover this other information that pointed you in a completely different direction. Exactly. Before we get back into discussing the treasure and this, uh, the, the codes and all the information that you uncovered, deciphered, and have mapped out in the book, I want to get back to some of the work that your mother did, because I'm curious about uh, the exhumation in 1995. You said she blew that out of the water, I think, were your words. How did she do that? Because wasn't the official uh, report that it was, in fact, Jesse James's body? Yeah, that's how they, they, they reported it in that, that way. Uh, well, first she had she had, you know when we first started we had family photographs. Well, instead of just going to someone like an an artist like some some of the so called experts had done, uh, we went. My mother took our family photographs to qualified experts like the Texas Department of Public Safety, who are our state police. Um, they their forensics lab verified that the photographs. Our family photographs matched known, historically accepted photographs of Jesse and his family members. Uh, his mother, for example, our photo of his mother and the historically accepted one, she was wearing the same dress with the same print. Um, and they looked identical. They were missing the same arm from the elbow down. Um, then we went to Visionics, who were world leaders in facial recognition technology, who were later bought out by a company called Identix. And we also, she also took the photographs to the forensic photographic analysts at the Austin Police Department, who also verified that our family photos matched historically accepted ones. Well, it went from there. They did the exhumation in 1995, and Mom wanted to know, you know, how could that be? How could that be, especially with all the evidence we've got? So she dug into that uh, to make long... Story short, when they dug up the, the uh, they hired a professor, not a forensics expert or a doctor, a professor of law, James E. Stars, to do the exhumation. He he dug up the grave. Um, it also it contained bones, but it also contained women's clothing and female bones. Ooh. So there were more than there was more than, apparently more than one body in that grave. Um, to, they didn't get any DNA from that grave. So, or they didn't get any DNA that matched what they wanted. So they, they, he uh, went to court and got a court order to get a tooth and a 
hair that were said to have been Jesse's from the the uh, James Farman Museum, which was owned by Clay County in Missouri. Well, they got the they got the tooth in the hair, but the lawyer who was at the time his name Stephen Caruso, at the time he was the county commissioner. Um, he pulled a hair, and he told me and my mother this in person. He pulled the hair, the hair they used for testing that they claimed was Jesse's, was actually a hair that Stephen Caruso had pulled from the head of the department, the Clay County Parks Director, John Hartman. They tested that hair. They didn't know. They claimed it was, you know, they thought it was Jesse's hair. It was John Hartman's. They didn't get any DNA from that, though. And I thought that was a pretty funny story. Uh, Stephen Caruso said the reason he did that is it was a tawdry sideshow sanitized for public consumption, and what they were doing was wrong, and he wasn't going to allow them to test the, the actual hair. So he gave a false hair. Uh, the tooth they tested that they claimed they got DNA from was dug out of the yard in 1978 where the, gra- the original grave was supposed to have been in the yard at the James Farm. That tooth... Along with that tooth was found dog teeth, dog bones, and a hog's tooth and some other animal bones. There's no verification as to who that tooth came from. And that's what they claimed. They, they wanted everybody to believe they exhumed the grave, got DNA from the grave, and proved it. The DNA they tested came from a tooth found in the yard. That could have been anybody's tooth. So there's no proof. You know, their, their proof that they claimed it isn't any. They have no. Proof. Okay, so if they if they took a tooth they found in the yard, uh, tested it, did they determine from a DNA test that it was in some way um, similar or exact an exact match to Jesse James? Are you saying that's what they used as the standard? That's what they used to claim it was Jesse James, and it matched one of their. Their I don't, alleged family members. Yeah, Daniel, I don't think that could stand up in any court. I mean, that's that, that's sh- yeah. that's shoddy work. Exactly, and not only that, it was supposedly dug up. There's no chain of custody with that. Right. It was dug up in 1978 and kept in a Tupperware bowl. It was handled by numerous people, so there's contamination right there. I mean, there's a lot of different horrible... I mean, there, there's exactly, it would not stand up in a court. So, oh, and yeah, the reason they claimed... They could have easily exhumed uh, Zerelda, Jesse's mother, and they didn't even have to make a show of it by digging up the entire grave. All they had to do was bore a small hole down into the grave and extract a dime-sized piece of bone. That was all that was needed. But, you know, they made a big show out of it and dug up the entire grave. Um, they, they could have dug up Zerelda. They claimed that a Missouri statute prevented them from exhuming her. There's no... There was no statute stating that at all. That was just a bold-faced lie. So, you know, I've got, I, obviously your mother did a lot of work, uh, which probably was a good re- part of the reason you became interested in this. But, um, you know, that doesn't necessarily lead someone to make this a lifelong 20-year research effort resulting in a book. What was it that drove you to do that? Just to, we, we wanted to know, well, basically, they, uh, and it's not so much their fault. I don't blame them uh, in a lot on, well, some things I do, but, but they grew up believing what they were told, the historically accepted version. And the whole reason that happened, Jesse needed that to be believed in order to escape. 
and you know live out his life under an under an alias. So in in the law, if you looked at the big picture, it's Jesse's fault all that happened. <laughs> so <laughs> I, you know, but at the same time, um, I, we wanted to know where we came from. Was he our ancestor or wasn't he? And you know that, that's a big. It's to us, it was extremely important to know where we came from and who he actually was. And uh, we we finally proved it, but it's it's been a long fight. Most of the resistance we we experienced came from the small group of people connected with the James Foreman Museum. Uh, but other than you know, it was it was a long long fight, and we finally you know she proved it with everything but DNA, and we're working on that right now. Uh, so that's what I was going to ask you. Uh, what did you? What were you able to use for proof? Were you able? I mean, when you go great great grandfather, you, you don't have to go back, you know, too many generations to connect the dots here. I'm assuming you connected the dots, but now you said you're working on connecting them with the DNA proof. Exactly. Uh, there's a doctor where we've been working with. My mother started working with him after she passed away in 2015. My sister and I contacted him. We're continuing the work, and we uh, we're. He's got it all laid out exactly how we need to go about it so that it stands up in court without any doubt. And we have DNA from a known, proven descendant from Zerelda, Jesse's mother. She has the same mitochondrial DNA. She passed away, but before she passed away, she donated some of her DNA to a strict chain of custody. We never touched it. It went from her doctor in California to our doctor here in Texas. So, you know, he's, he's got that on file. It's safe, and we're, we're just trying to... We, we've tested that. It showed a definite re, uh, relation between my mother and her, but we want, to, we want each step, like you said, each generation, just so there is no doubt. Dan, we're talking about treasure. We're talking about Jesse James. How does all this come together? Well, as I'd stated earlier, the... Uh, treasure legends that I started I had started to to research in the beginning I thought at most if I were lucky I could maybe stumble on a saddlebag with some silver and gold coins or 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 a mason jar with some silver um, as I you know and then during while researching that it led to um, there were rumors that Jesse had been part of a group during the civil war called the Knights of the Golden Circle most, a lot of people refer to them as just the KGC, uh, their acronym. Well, they, there was a template that they had supposedly used to locate and bury their treasures. Um, but there was no scale given. So I, you know, I, I had the template, which is easily available online. You can find it in a lot of places if you just Google KGC template. Um, I had the template. I didn't know how it fit. I was researching that, trying to discover the, the scale, and around that time, I had I had uh, we were we were contacted by by uh, Wagner Carr, who was the former Attorney General of the state of Texas. He he had contacted my mother regarding Jesse, and he he used to believe it was a different person that Jesse was actually somebody else, a guy by the name of J. Frank Dalton. After getting to know my mother and talking for a few years, he. He came to believe my mother's story and not the Dalton story. Um, he had his driver drive us out to several locations where treasure had been but had been recovered. 
and there were large treasures. Uh, so I had those locations, and about the same time, a man named George Romy, he was an elderly man in his 80s, he had known Jesse when George was a boy of, of about 10 years old. He knew Jesse when Jesse was an old man. Uh, Jesse had hired him and swore him to secrecy and hired him to help him move 680 bars of gold to a location where some other men that Jesse had known, they were also old, uh, they had property out near out, outside of Belton in the Temple Killeen area. Um, they buried the 680 bars of gold. George, before he died, drew a map for my mother and I and, and showed us where it was. It's under a lake, and it's also on Fort Hood's property. So I wasn't going to even attempt that. Yeah. Um, but it helped in that the locations that Wagner Carr had his driver show us, in, in addition to the location George had shown us, helped me put the template. Fit the, they fit the template, and it gave me the scale I needed. And I went from there. I started expanding the template out and found that it, it covers most of the United States, and, well, the Americas. It even goes into Canada and Mexico. And it also ties in with uh, historical sites that are very old. For example, uh, Scott Walter's Kensington Runestone in Minnesota. I'm not sure if you've heard of that. Oh, absolutely. It, yeah, we've had Scott on the program, actually. We've talked about well, it. Well, it ties in with that location as well and other sites like the Newport Tower on the East Coast, uh, Oak Island, and several other, um, the Los Lunas Decalogue Stone in New Mexico. And I, I thought, okay, if that, if it ties in with all these sites and they're located on the templates, how does that tie in with the KGC? Um, I, I couldn't figure that out. And as I went on, as the research continued, I ruled out the KGC. Uh, most of the treasures including Victoria Peak in New Mexico, which was mentioned in the Watergate hearings. It was a, a short mention of it, but they mentioned it in the Watergate hearings. So President Nixon apparently knew about it. Um, it, it tied in with that, and that predates the objects that were said to have been discovered in Victoria Peak, New Mexico, predated the KGC by centuries, uh, including a translation of a letter from Pope Pius III said to have been found in there describing the treasure and and how to locate it. So so that from there I went to uh, that tied in with the Bruton Parish Church in Williamsburg, Virginia. Um, and, and to make a long story short, there's two templates. There's the template I began to work with, and then there's a Tree of Life template, which I believe holds the largest treasures and the most significant ones that that um, tie in with the Templar, Rosicrucians, Freemason, Freemasons, um, alchemists from the Middle Ages, uh, Jewish rabbis, all the way back to Rashi, who was a famous Jewish rabbi, who was a favored court guest of Hugh, the Count of Champagne, who was one of the co-founders of the Knights Templar. And I believe the treasures that the Templar were said to have, have obtained in the Holy Lands were moved by the Templar to France and other areas, but a lot of them, I believe, were moved to Oak Island and then the rest of the Americas. Again, and the template locates, I mean, it, it lines up perfect with all of these sites. It, to, to me, it just blew my mind when I first 
first stumbled on that. Uh, again, your answer has created so many more questions. We've got about a minute here before we have to go to our top of the hour break, so I don't want to get into uh, any more of that detail yet, but we will when we come back. So you you have been researching this and actually working on all of what you just said for about 20 years? Yes, sir. And at what point did you find the templates? When did, when did that aha moment come? Well, at first, you know, the, the KGC template, which I ruled out, it's not a KGC template. It's a Freemason and Templar template um, that when I started stumbling upon, I, I started reading, you know, more writings of uh, Albert Pike, and that led into Jewish Kabbalah, Geometria, and that the aha moments came from reading people like Pike and Manley Palmer Hall, uh, Knight, the, the current Templar Grandmaster, Timothy Hogan, who had written several books. The information they had put in there, along with um, Kabbalistic information, Information I've obtained from reading uh, about Jewish Kabbalah, Christian, and occult Kabbalah all formed together to and created that aha moment. Um, everything started fitting together, fell into place, and I was stunned. Tomorrow night, John Kachuba will be with us. He is a paranormal author, and he'll talk about shapeshifters from cultures all around the world, from primitive man right up to current day in folklore, myth, and pop culture, and in reality. That's tomorrow night's program here on Beyond Reality Radio. A lot of great stuff coming up later in the week as well. I will mention that Thursday night it'll be a best-of program as I'm headed to Gettysburg for a particularly fun event. Looking forward to that. Um, Let's bring our guest, Daniel Duke, back into the show. By the way, we are taking your phone calls at 607-282-4497 or toll-free at 844-687-7669. Daniel... You've mentioned diaries a few times in our chat so far. Tell us about the diaries. Have the diaries been um, known to exist since um, Jesse James died, whether it's, you know, whichever whichever version of the death that we're, we're talking about, or uh, were they found recently? They, they were known to exist uh, on, in our family. Um, I don't, I've never heard mention of them in any of the historical, you know, the accepted historical accounts. It was, he kept, and he never talked about his feelings or thoughts. It was just more of a, like a log book in a way. He just listed the facts, who he met, what he did, who he, you know, what he purchased, uh, and, where, and where he went. And uh, they, they, there are others out there that other family members had. I don't know where those are right now. Um, some of them have been secreted away. Uh, but we were fortunate to get what I believe is the most important one, dating from 1871 to 1876, and it's full of a lot of evidence showing, you know, he was who, who that he was Jesse. Uh, I know that you are completely convinced of the legitimacy of the diaries. Uh, is there any question as to whether they're authentic or not? Do, do, do anybody does anybody dispute it? No, uh, it hasn't. It's been mocked by uh, some of the, uh, oh, the some of the group that had had been affiliated with the James Farman Museum but they never they never questioned it and we my mother had even contacted handwriting experts who verified that the handwriting in the diary matched known handwriting from Jesse um, also he signed on one of the pages in the diary he signed it J James and that, in addition to 
mentioning known gang members like Bill Wilkerson, Bud Singleton, and others. It's just, you know, there's, there's too much evidence in the diary to dispute it. You also talk about maps. Were the maps part of the diaries, or are these something different? The, the maps were, one map, he had, uh, he had a map, an original one, that his son Byron, after, when he died in 1943, half his children, instead of going to the funeral, stayed behind digging up his yard looking for their gold and silver. Um, it was, which I thought was terrible, but that's just how it happened. And um, his son, one of his sons, Byron, had copied the map, and we have the copy that Byron had made. Uh, there are other maps that he had, he had that we've got, we have or have access to, and uh, including like the map that George Roaming, who had helped actually bury the 681 bars of gold, he drew that out for us. When we talk about treasure, um, you're talking about many or at least several treasures uh, buried in different locations, and that's what these maps and these codes reveal. Um, But what is the source of all these treasures? Are these just the product of his criminal activity for all those years? Some of them, I believe, came from exactly that, the criminal activity, robbing banks and trains. But there's so much gold in some of these catches, it couldn't have been from him, like Victoria Peak, for example, it was enough to fund. Like, if it had been in the hands of the KGC, the Knights of the Golden Circle, they, their goal was to fund a second civil war. There was enough in Victoria Peak to fund a second civil war. If that was their goal, they would have taken it and done, you know, followed through with their plans. But um, it, it wasn't theirs. I ruled them out. The, a lot of the gold came from different sources. Jesse was... He played, a, he was an important part of it, but he played a small role in the scheme of things. Uh, I think most of the important treasures came from the Knights Templar and Freemasons, Rosicrucians, and some of the Jewish rabbis. All these groups that had been persecuted in Europe, a lot of the learned men in those different groups had joined together in groups like the Rosicrucians and, and alchemy circles, and this was a dream of theirs to have a free nation where they could speak their minds without worrying about being burned at the stake. So uh, I think a lot of the treasures were passed down and accumulated over the years. I even think some of them came from pirates, uh, like Lafitte, Jean Lafitte, and others. When we talk about Templar treasure, are we t- and, and Jesse James's involvement in Templar treasure, are we talking about the, fa- the fact that he actually got a hold of this treasure and buried it? Or did he just happen to know the locations of it and include them in his maps? Both. He had added to uh, some places he had buried. It was all his that, you know, that he had supplied. Others he had added to, and he knew about, I think, most of them. Um, I, I can't say for sure exactly how much of it he knew, but the, based on everything I've, I've found, it's hard to say he didn't know about all of it, the whole story. Um, so, so both of what both accounts fall into place perfectly with that. So, what was his connection with the Templars then? Well, when he had faked his death, he had joined, and, and he was living as a peaceable farmer here in Texas. Uh, he had joined Freemasonry. He was a legitimate you know, under his alias of James Lafayette Courtney. I have, I have theories that he he was involved with it before he 
faked his death before 1871, but I can't prove that. You know, with with that things of that nature, it's kind of hard to prove some of that. So I just have a theory, and I can't state that as a fact. But I I believe he he had influences and was involved in it before he came to Texas. And you also talk about um, the founding fathers having a hand in this as well. Yes, uh, I, when I first discovered this, I wanted. I thought, okay, there's there's the Tree of Life template. There's the other template, which I now call the Veil template. Um, how do they fit? That led me into reading, you know, Albert Pike and other Masonic authors, and I wanted to find almost like a family tree who who it came from, who was involved, and go back as far as I could. And I traced it, you know, Jesse was a, a Freemason, so there's that. During the Civil War, he, he had fought from, the Quantrill's guerrillas ranged from North Texas all the way up to Missouri. Um, Albert Pike, he was a Confederate general. His area was the Indian Territory around, you know, Oklahoma mostly. So they had obviously been, they'd, they'd had contact, and there were, there are historical documents showing that they had fought, groups of Quantrill's guerrillas had fought alongside uh, Albert Pike's group. Um, so, you know, there's a potential tie there. There's a definite tie with Freemasonry. I traced it back to the Founding Fathers, who seem like a Bruton Parish vault are, is in the churchyard of Bruton Parish Church in Williamsburg, Virginia. It was that the vault and the original foundations were discovered by Maria Bauer Hall, who was Manley Palmer Hall, the famous Freemason and author. She was his wife. Uh, she, she, her reading, her her books gave me a lot of clues on how it connected from Ameri- the Americas back to Europe through Francis Bacon. And uh, when I got to that, I thought, okay, Francis Bacon, he's the guy who started all this. And then I, I realized some of the treasures predated Francis Bacon. So how could he have started this? And that's what led me into deeper research. It goes back through Isaac Newton, John Dee, who was Francis Bacon's mentor. And John Dee was a famous alchemist and known as the original 007. He was a spy, an alchemist. He, he was a man with, he had a lot of different specialties. Um, he tied back in with men like he, he went to school with a, a man by the name of. Oh, I, let me get. I need to read that so I don't mispronounce it. Gerolamo Cordano, and Gerolamo Cordano's father was a close friend of Leonardo da Vinci. Oh wow! He, you know, I tied these people back through their associations and their you know personal and professional associations and people they knew and studied with. And it goes all the way back through, like, uh, Paolo Riccio, who was a Jewish convert to Christianity. I have my, a theory that he was a, what they termed crypto-Jew. It, it, in those days, in a lot of cases, it was convert or die or yeah. lose everything you own. Right. So uh, he had written a book in 1516 which had a, a hidden map on the, front of, on the cover. The book is titled Porte Lucis. And you can find that online in a lot of places. There's a hidden map that shows uh, what I believe the man in the map is, I believe, to be a representation of the man who wrote, who originally wrote the book named Abraham Gikatilla. He was a Jewish rabbi. Uh, there's symbols in that, the hooked X that Scott Walter is credited for, uh, that ties back to the Templar. 
the seat that the man is sitting on is is in the shape of the hooked X. And he's pointing at the floor where there's a hidden map showing the Atlantic and the New World, and he's holding a Tree of Life, which matches up with the Tree of Life template that I discovered. Um, from there, it goes all the way back through various Jewish rabbis and mystics and alchemists, all the way back to Rashi, who was a famous Jewish rabbi and Kabbalist, and he was a favored court guest of Hugh, Count of Champagne, who was the co-founder of the Templar. I mean, it just, all these people, they tie in together, and there are historical records showing a connection with them. Daniel, I want to find out more about the, is it the Bruton, B-R-U-T-O-N, Parish Church? Is that how it's pronounced? That's right. That plays an important role in this. I've heard it pronounced different ways. Some people call it Bruton. That's Uh how I do it. I may be pronouncing it wrong, but okay. but it's kind, of, it's kind of got an interesting little story on its own there. Tell us about this this uh, this little church. Well, Marie Bauer Hall, had, had uh, I'd found out about it. I'd heard about it prior to reading her book, but I, all the details I know of it came from her book. It was amazing. Uh, she had traced um, involvement of, well, Francis Bacon had, had been involved in it. There were codes in his works that she tied in to and used to find the original foundations of the original church that was buried there. Um, the second church was built in 1715, and she, people had laughed at her about it at first until she proved them wrong. Uh, she located and proved that, yes, the, you know, the, the original foundations were exactly where the codes had told her they would be. So then she, she mentioned a vault that was buried under the cemetery with connections to Freemasonry, Rosicrucian, and she claimed contained documents and treasures of historical and spiritual significance and just you know, amazing documents and treasures, uh, things that would be life-changing or history-changing for, for everybody. Um, so that, you know, of course, catches your eye. Yeah. But the, the, it was built in, the second church was built in 1715, and that number ties in in a lot of strange ways with this whole story. 1715 was also the year the, the Grand Lodge in, in England was, was uh, formed, the, the Freemasonic Grand Lodge. And it was also, from, if you draw a line from Bruton Parish Church to Victoria Peak in New Mexico, it's 1,715 miles. Uh, that number keeps popping up in a lot of ways. If you draw a line from the church to the College of William and Mary, just down the street, it's 1,715 feet from about the area where the vault is supposed to be located to the church, which is called the Christopher Wren Building. And Christopher Wren, Sir Christopher Wren, was a Freemason and a member of the Royal Society who was also involved in all of this. And he had designed the original building for the first building for the College of William and Mary. This just all neatly ties together, doesn't it? Yes, it does. It ties in with, and also the, the in Gematria, using Gematria, the Kabbalistic, the Jewish Kabbalistic version of it, I found that 1715 can be broken into 5 times 7 times 7 times 7. Well, the, the Gematria for those can be translated as, Behold the Tree of Life. So, I mean, there's a lot, or it can also be, translated as God and the Tree of Life. So there's a lot of 
that number ties in in a lot of different ways, and it all points to the Tree of Life template and the Veil template. So, Daniel, again, going back to this discussion, you've done a lot of research. You've learned how to use the templates to determine uh, kind of where the X marks the spots points are. Is there treasure still out there waiting to be found? I believe so. I believe there's quite a few. Um, <clears throat> a lot have been recovered. I think they're all they're all known um, by people. The, I believe there are people today who know exactly where there are, other than myself. Um, and but I do think there are there are some smaller ones, and maybe I believe there's probably a few of the very large ones. Huh. Have you been out in the field, actually? I know you've done a lot of research from, you know, uh, the printed, printed material and stuff that you've looked at to come up with these um, points. Have you been out looking for them yourself? Yes. I've, I've been to a, a lot of different places looking for them. Back, uh, before my mother passed away, we used to go to uh, throughout Texas, Oklahoma, and other states just trying to locate where they were. Yeah. We... We have found a lot of symbols in some places, uh, uh, known treasure symbols like heart-shaped rocks, rocks that were cut into the shape of a heart, uh, turtles, some rocks stacked or carved to look like a turtle, um, different forms of turtles, and, and uh, even a couple of rocks. I've, one rock I found that I don't believe anyone has seen other than my, me and my, my immediate family uh, was where Jesse and his gang had supposedly camped after robbing a mule train packed with gold in Oklahoma, and there was the, the letter J carved onto a rock. It was hidden and covered up as a large rock in the side of a bluff next to a spring, and uh, I'd found the letter J carved there. And that, to me, that was just knowing that, my, that he was said to have camped there, yeah. and I found evidence showing that he was there. Uh, it just it felt it was a strange feeling standing in the same spot where he had stood you know, a little over a hundred years earlier. So, what's what's uh, next in the unsa- unraveling this mystery here? What what do you do next? There's more research. Uh, there's also, as you can imagine, when you when touching on all the different topics I've touched on and all the people, there's a lot of stories that go off in different directions, but they all tie back in to the same spot. Um, that and looking for. You know, just trying. I would love to locate some of the treasures, just to know where they are, and I would really love to know what's what's there. Um, some some areas I would be a little nervous about checking, especially if it's items of spiritual significance. Maybe I'm, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I'm worthy to to even, you know, look at it. Yeah, that may sound strange to some people, but it's. Uh, there's a lot of interesting things involved in this. I would love to know where they are and just what what is in what is contained in that spot. I want to go back to the Bruton Parish Church for a second because I'm not sure we completely uh, finished that discussion. When um, there was some excavation being done there, and that original chamber was located, uh, the work was stopped. Right, so we don't know what's actually in there. What is it going to take to begin working there again and uncover those secrets? I'm not. Um, that, that's a good question. I, I don't know. 
there are a lot of sites that that would take <laughs> a lot of heavy equipment. Uh, Victoria Peak, for example, I don't know if anyone will ever access that again, or or or, or if anyone from the public would be able to. I don't know if it's all been recovered or if there's more there. Um, there. There's a lot of areas I believe would take some very, it would take a lot of different experts to safely enter and retrieve any treasures. And it, it would, I don't know. I, it, it's a very good question. Each spot is unique in, in, it, in itself, and the treasures they hold are, you know, very I believe most of the treasures on the Veil template are more gold and silver and smaller treasures. I think the ones on the Tree of Life template tie in with the legends of the seven cities of gold, uh, like Cibola. Um, and I believe that the, the upper portion of the Tree of Life template would be more likely to contain treasures of spiritual significance, things that would change history. So I guess what I was kind of working toward uh, in in the Bruton Parish Church case, if work was halted, um, that would imply that some government agency got involved to stop the work. And if a government agency got involved to stop the work, does that mean the government agency or parts of government actually have knowledge of this stuff and are intentionally trying to keep it secret? It would shock me if they didn't. Uh, there's been so much, and so much light shined on that throughout the years from various people, I, I, it would really shock me if they didn't know about it. Uh, they may have already recovered it, uh, or maybe it's best left right where it's at, in a, and that's a safe spot. Um, I, don't, I don't know if anyone would ever, I don't know, that's, that's, that's a great question, and I don't know the answer to it. I would hope that it could be opened just for the public. Maybe it's not the right time. Maybe, maybe you know, I, I don't know. No, no, I I don't think there's any clear answers to any of that. And that often happens when we start talking about government involvement in some of these things. But let's talk uh, about another place that you mentioned that is part of this mystery, which is a place that I find particularly fascinating, and that's Oak Island. You said there's a connection there. Yeah, the uh, Veil Template. And the way the Veil Template connects with the Tree of Life Template, um, in in researching the Kabbalistic Tree of Life, there are what's called three veils of negative existence. And the interesting thing is the veil template I I've, I've keep mentioning comes in three sizes. It's a small, medium, and large. And they cover the tree of life on the template. Well, I, that template covers the you know, can, parts of Canada, if most of Canada, um, all of the United States, and Mexico. So... In, in drawing out the template, you know, and it took forever. It was on Google Earth. Just doing that took a long time, getting the angles right, the distances and everything. It's harder to do than it, lo- than it sounds on Google Earth because it's a collage of maps, and there's, it's not exact, but it's very close. Um, the template lines up with Oak Island and areas surrounding Oak Island, uh, the Veil template. The Tree of Life template is solely in the United States, but the Veil template covers, you know, the Americas. And um, that's how I found out for sure that it was connected is because the template, after finishing that section of it, it lines up perfectly with the areas around Oak Island. 
Now, I, I, I don't know how familiar with the uh, television show that's been airing for seven seasons or so, The Curse of Oak Island, where the Lagina brothers are searching exhaustively to try to determine what's buried there, if anything. Uh, and they have a lot of people bringing in different theories. Have you presented your ideas to them? No, I haven't spoken to them directly. I would like to. It'd be interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they, they do bring uh, people in that have, um, you know, theories that differ from the ones that they've been working on. So it might be an interesting discussion. So if if you could search one place based on the information that you've uncovered, where would you go? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, the Well, the, the uh, middle part of America, <laughs> middle part of the United States, mm-hmm. there are two locations involved with the Tree of Life template that I I would really love to have a look at, even just to walk over it. It would be, you know, just to see if I could find any clues, any any signs of any kind of activity. Uh, it would be, that I think, parts of Kansas and, and Oklahoma and also part of Texas as the third spot. There's actually three. I keep, every time I think of one, I think of, oh, yeah, there's another interesting one. <laughs> so, when it's you... like a kid in a candy store, you start... You know, you, you can't make up your mind on which one you want the most. But When you say part of, I mean, are you talking about a large part, or you, have you narrowed it down to, you know, I don't know, a couple square miles that you need to look at? I've, I believe I have it narrowed down to within a square mile easily, Okay, if, if not better. As far as um, the uh, information that you've presented regarding Jesse James's actual death, do you know where he's buried? Yeah, I believe he's buried in Blevins, Texas. Um, it's a small community about 30 miles south of Waco. Is that not even a community anymore? It used to be a, just a, a dot on the map. I mean, there was a store there at one time, that it, the building's there, but it's just a couple of houses in a cemetery. And he lived about a mile from that, and he's buried in the cemetery there. And is he buried under the name James uh, Courtney? That's right. James lost James L. Courtney is on the tombstone. Uh, one of his there was a story passed down through the family. One of his friends asked him which name he would want to be buried under Jesse or Court, you know James Courtney, and he said his quote was a name to live by is a name to die by. And how, so, how many? I'm trying to do the math again. How many years was he living under that assumed identity? From well, from 1871 at least he was using that name. And he until 1943. So, did you say 1943? That's right. Wow. He died, he died at the age of 97 in 1943. Wow. Okay, so he lived well into the 20th century. Yeah, it brings it a lot closer. You know, when, when you think of Jesse, I always had it in my mind growing up that, you know, that was the Old West way back when, you know. But actually, when it's in 1943 when he died... My uncle Wayne, who's now passed, when he was a, an infant, Jesse held him on his lap. I mean, it's it's a close connection. Yeah. It brings the history that much closer. Like you can almost reach out and grab it. What is it? That, what is it about um, these notorious criminals that we have such a fascination for? Um, you know, we uh, and, and we look at things like uh, shows on Netflix. The the best shows they have. On on uh, there is performance wise on Netflix and some of these other channels are true crime type shows. What is our fascination with all this? I think with Jesse, 
he, he had been done wrong, and he he did wrong. He wasn't an angel by any means, but he wasn't a bad man in my book. Uh, I think of the fascination lies. He was known as America's Robin Hood in some groups. Some people hated him. Some people loved him. Uh, he was like a folk hero. They, you know, he was fighting against the the powerful railroad barons and, and people like that. But I think he fits that archetype of Robin Hood. Yeah. You know, or in different different the story that he used took advantage of to to get, get away and live a peaceful life falls in line with you know the the Robin Hood was betrayed and uh, you know he was shot by one of his own cowardly backstabbing gang members you know and, and that story just i think it pulls at the emotions of most people who read that kind of story whether you liked him or not whether he was good or bad he was betrayed you know and that that pulls a lot of a lot of emotional strings, and uh, it fits that archetype of Robin Hood. Do you think you'll ever have an opportunity, whether it's, I don't know how you could do it short of exhuming the grave of James Courtney at this point, but to come up with that uh, that, that smoking gun that'll um, confirm this whole story for you? Yeah. The um, Well, we've already come across, my sister and I have just co-authored a, another book, Continuing Our Mother's Work, just dealing with Jesse. And that should come out in, I believe, 2020. I know it'll be in the catalog this fall, but I'm, I'm not sure as a public, you know, the date it will be released. But um, we've got a lot of information. We have a new photograph showing my great-great-grandfather, Jesse, a.k.a. James L. Courtney, standing next to his mother at the, at the funeral, at Jesse James, at his own funeral. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, with Wood Height, who we believe was Wood Height, in the casket. Frank, Zerelda, and Jesse are all standing there. That'd be a pretty risky move, wouldn't it, to go to attend your own funeral when you're trying to fake your own death? It would be, and it seems crazy, but at the same time, nobody could ID him except his own family. Yeah. A few of his immediate family knew exactly what he looked like, and some of his friends, and, and his friends were mostly fellow gang members. Given that oh. uh, James, we only have about a minute here, given that James Courtney lived till 1943, were there many pictures taken of, taken of him later in life? Yes, there's a lot of photos of him as an older man, photos of him in his 50s, throughout his life. We have a tin type of him from 1871 when he came to Texas, and, you know, different stages of his life, we have photos of him. Wow. Um, Daniel, we're out of time. The book is called Jesse James and the Lost Templar Treasure, and I believe it's just being released now, right? Yeah, tomorrow is the official release date. When you say tomorrow, you mean January well, actually, no, or I mean, July 9th? Yeah, it's today, yeah, right? July yeah. 9th. Yeah. Well, congratulations on the book, and again, let people know where they can get a hold of it. Yeah, you can get a hold of it through innertraditions.com, uh, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, or really anywhere books are sold. It's been a pleasure having you on the program. When you have the next book release, let us know. We'll get you back on. I'll do that. It was a pleasure, and thank you for having me. I'm honored. So one thing uh, that we didn't mention as the program started here, it's the first show we've had since uh, California suffered a few earthquakes there. Um, I haven't heard any of the latest reports. I don't know if the, if the tremors are continuing, uh, but uh, you know, obviously they've talked about a big one for a very, very long time. Thankfully, this one didn't do more damage uh and cause more injury because um i i remember the actually i I was watching the world series was it 1991 when san francisco had the earthquake during the world series i think i was too young at that point 
you never read, you don't read history, you don't, <laughs> don't you don't educate yourself on this stuff. Well, All my right. my daughter's in California right now, uh, and uh, they didn't feel the where they, where is she in California? Um, Santa Barbara. Yeah. Uh, so it was not you know in the entire statewide. I don't think it was 1988. Someone said 1988 in chat because I know I was traveling on business and I was not uh, out of college at that point. So. Um, either way, our our you know hearts, minds, and prayers go out to anybody who suffered any damage or any kind of loss with that. And man, you know, um, it's it's scary. You know, Mother Nature has some real fury, whether it comes in the form of a hurricane or an earthquake or a volcano or whatever it happens to be. Mm, sure. It's it's uh, you know that's a force to be reckoned with for sure. So uh, tomorrow night we're going to be talking about another force completely shapeshifters with John Kachuba. He's a paranormal author, and he'll talk about. Uh, shapeshifters and how they appear in cultures all around the world and throughout time from primitive man to today. Uh, We'll talk about folklore, myth, and pop culture, and, of course, reality, or in this case, beyond reality. But that's going to do it for tonight. Thanks for being here, everybody. And again, thank you to our guest, Danielle Duke. It's Beyond Reality Radio. We'll catch you next time. Beyond Reality Radio is hosted by Jason Hawes and J.V. Johnson and produced by Alexandria Johnson and Slick Eddie Edwards for Intercom Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is distributed by Westwood One Radio Networks. Stop by our Facebook page and say hello. Follow the hosts on Facebook as well. For Jason Hawes, follow at JasonHawes.taps. For J.V. Johnson, follow at J.V.J. Paranormal. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Radio or you have a suggestion for a guest, contact Slick Eddie Edwards at SlickEddieEdwards at gmail.com. Be sure to visit our chat room as well at beyondrealityradio.com. Thanks for listening.